I think a lot of people know bad design when they see it, but we hear good design is invisible quite a bit. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. On this episode, we have Doug Collins, designer from Western Union. So can you tell us a bit about uh, your title, role, and what you do at Western Union? And yeah, uh, Western I'm... Union, if people don't know what that is. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm very accurately wearing my UX and UI shirt today. So I am a manager of a UX and UI team. So not that we're combining those phrases because we aren't combining those job titles, but I do have a small team of two UI professionals that I work with based in India. And then I have another UX person on my team uh, here in Denver, which is where I'm uh, located out of in the United States, um, working for Western Union. So I started back with Western Union back in November. Western Union is really famous for its person-to-person money transfer being able to send money just about anywhere in the world with the exception of, I think, Iran, North Korea, and I think there's one other place, Cuba is probably a place we don't serve at this point. OFAC making things difficult for those countries right now. But side of business that I work on is on the uh, B2B side. So uh, large money transfers going from business to business cross-border, usually doing some sort of foreign exchange along the way. We also do, there are about four or five different products that I work on. One of the other products I work on that does things like handle payments from students going from their home country, studying abroad to where the university might be out there as well, too. So it's a very it's a very fintech sort of heavy environment, lots of data flowing through lots of numbers and tables and figures, which is in stark contrast with a lot of other things I've done in my career. But it's certainly something that's interesting and it's powerful and it's meaningful. We're out there helping people get paid and helping people move along with their lives and their business. And it's a good feeling to be helping people. That's why I got into this in the first place. So not only do I get to help our clients, but now I get to help my team too, which is great. <laughs> Wonderful to have a good team. Some really great guys, Mateen, Marie, and, and Jay. I got to give a shout out to all my team members. They're great. And I'm really excited to have them on our team and, and to really be building over here at Western Union. Well, when I think of Western Union, I still think of the, the Western Union locations. And so I typically think it of as a mostly offline experience. So are you designing this online offline experience or are you designing the digital experiences? Yeah, it's interesting. This is the, the B2B side of things is almost entirely online. There, there is... See a small offline component, but it really is. You can come online, buy a particular type of currency and send that or take the currency that you have and send that across borders into the same currency type or a different currency type. It really gets it really gets complex, <laughs> to be honest with you. You get into things like foreign exchange and forward contracts and just being able to mit- you know, risk mitigation in terms of the money market is so, and the foreign exchange market is so different now um, than what it has been in the past. You'd used to see that a lot of currencies would move 2 to 3% in a year. And now you can see that in a day pretty easily with some currencies out there and even more. It's, it's an interesting time to be part of Western Union. They haven't had anybody on the digital design side of things before they really started investing a couple of years ago. They got a, a wonderful a UX professional named Albert Jackson to come in. Uh, and help out. And he was there as a contractor for a couple of years before I started in here. And I just started back in November and we've been building our team. So we're still really new and building a design system and building our sort of our legs underneath us in terms of our UX practices uh, as well too, and really trying to make some efforts there. But that's common for a lot of people in the UX industry. And it's common for a lot of the jobs that I've worked in, building up those design systems, building up those design teams and, and structures and uh, different uh, approaches is, is something that I've done pretty much everywhere I've gone throughout my entire career. 
career. So I suppose it's no no surprise that I'm doing that again here at Western Union. Tell us about the design system at Western Union. What, what yeah. is that modeled off and what does it look like and what are the components? How big is it? So we've got a couple of different things that we... A uh, couple of different things that we do. I don't know how much I can talk about our back end, and I don't want to get myself in trouble with that. Sure. There is a design system that we're linked through to that we're kind of required to use for some of our products right now that we're trying to get away to, and that has to do with the way that our systems are logged together with a very large back end component that has an existing design system that was just sort of being used before they hired the design team. So that was there, that was available. Our engineers said, hey, let's use it and we can move forward with that. That said, when we first started there, there's a lot of inconsistency. And that's something that you see a lot when you come into a, an organization that's never had a design team. You get people that are making intelligent choices based off of the situation that they're in. You get these developers say, okay, I have to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to find these components. And then if I need to tweak something a little bit, I'm going to do it. But it's all going to go through. But because there's no central design system, you just get a, a ton of inconsistency. So even if things work well within their own sort of process flow, it's not consistent with the rest of uh, yeah. what was going on there, even borrowing from the design system that we had. So one of the things that they first told me when I started working here was, hey, we need a design system. And I'm going... My goodness, those are not easy to put together. Those are a long-term project, especially with a smaller team where we're only a group of four. So we're not a yeah. not a huge team. How many apps are there or how many? Let's see here. So we have Global Pay, Global Pay Plus, uh, Global Pay for Students, Global Pay for Financial Institutions, Mass Pay, which is our API for mass payments. And I'm sure I'm missing another one in there. So I think we're at six total. And yeah, Global Pay, despite our our love and insistence of global pay. This is actually a, a few different, very distinct system. Edge, there we go. How could I forget Edge? So we've got a, a lot of different components running through there and just a lack of consistency within those and then across, of course, those as well. One of the things that was really nice though is that we found that our money transfer team, our, which is the consumer side of the business rather than the, the, the B2B side that I'm on, has already has a design system that they've been working on for six years. So okay. that's great. So we can borrow some of that, but because of the way our backend is constructed with everything, we're not going to be able to borrow it wholesale. So yeah. we're trying, we're in the process of figuring out what we can and, and can't borrow and how we're going to work around with that going forward. So yeah. it's an interesting time. <laughs> but it's and uh, what's the design tool of choice? So we're using Sketch as our sort of our main design tool. And then we've got a program called Abstract to do our design system version management. Yeah, obviously, I've worked a lot with Sketch. I've never worked at such large design systems that we needed a version management tool before. So this is nice that we have that. It's really allowing us to build out all of our components in Sketch, put them in through our, our own version management, and have our developers grab what they need and just be able to, to go and go off running with it, which is superb yeah, for us. Yeah. Good setup there. And then we've got you know a bunch of other tools you know, around that we use for various different things, but those are two main ones. I, I hear that Figma has, once you build the design system, it has some analytics or usage stat statistics so that you know, if you build a design system in Figma, you can tell who's using it. So then you go to the department that's like <laughs> very light on usage and they're still producing designs, which means they're just off on their own. And how's how big is the transfer team? And yeah. Uh, the money transfer team, I'm not entirely sure because I haven't met everyone over there and they are much more dispersed. Even our, even our team is fairly dispersed. We're literally on opposite sides of the world, uh, but they have more designers around the world. And I think last I checked, they were like 15, 20, somewhere in there. So a much larger team, but they do 
significantly more business. Not surprised by that at all. Right. The, the C part is much more than the B2B, you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's, I don't think that's always going to be that way. And one of the things that I'm very interested in is how that's really going to evolve. We see day by day a, more, a worldwide economy and people being able and smaller groups being able to operate on a global level. I think we're moving away from the the C2C version of things being a big business to eventually having the B2B side of things really take over. And it's exciting to see. I think there's a lot of opportunity there and it's a great time to be a part of it. Yeah. So you work with a pretty distributed, small global team. Give us some advice on how (laughs) you make that work, especially Uh, if they're on the other side of the world. Yeah. So they are literally 12 and a half hours ahead of me. So it is, it is a, (laughs) my, my first rule is a lot of coffee because actually, no, I shouldn't say that. We, one of the things I, I'm very passionate about is being respectful of each other's time and trying, knowing as a leader that I, I want my team to work as normal hours as they possibly can. So if that means that I'm up later, if I'm up running a meeting at 10, 1030 at night, but that's 1030, 11 o'clock in the morning, their time, if that's making things easier for them. I'm more than happy to do that. At the same point in time, there's a little bit of give and take. There might be times where I'm asking them to be up a little bit later or a little bit earlier, but it all evens out in the end. It all comes out in the end. We're all respectful of each other's time and just uh, keeping an eye on that. The other thing that I think is really important in terms of how we interact with each other is just making sure that we're checking in with each other on a consistent basis and having those good open lines of communication. So always making sure that we're hitting our weekly one-on-ones to make sure that we're really checking on how each other is doing and and keeping us accountable for the the work that we're doing and and being there to oversee and and keep an eye on each other. It really is a design team. We're all trying to help each other. We're all pulling in the same direction and being present and cognizant of what's going on in each other's neck of the woods and lives is it's sometimes more difficult, but building a culture where we're all there and, and all pulling the same way has been, I think, one of the most fun parts of starting up this team is really just getting everybody on the same page with that. Yeah. Are you doing any sort of user testing or user research? Being a really small, nimble team, do you have resources to do that? Well, you can't do UX without doing research. I think if you're, <laughs> if you're not yeah, doing yeah. research. Yeah, hey. yeah. And my last role before this was as a senior UX researcher. So I would be very sad if we weren't. We are just starting to get dipping our toes into things. As a matter of fact, one thing that I've been unable to complete the last couple of days is uh, a survey for some user testing that we're trying to set up. It, it, it's a really interesting environment right now with the distributed team and COVID. It's a lot more difficult than what it would normally be. Normally it would be, let's find some people that let us go watch them and, and do their work and, and sit down and talk with them and do the interviews and knock that out of the park. It might be a little bit of travel involved, but you know that's part and parcel of the job. And honestly, something that makes it a little bit fun too. Now we're trying to figure out how to do these things, not only in the COVID environment, but on a distributed team and with clients that are truly worldwide. A lot of our business isn't in North of America, North America. A lot of our business is in the Asia Pacific region. A lot of our business is in Europe, in Africa, and Southeast Asia. It's a very distributed place. So it, it makes research a lot more difficult, I think, than what sort of your normal e-commerce type research might be. You, you need to make sure that you have a much larger reach. So we're just beginning to tackle some of our first research questions with that and figuring out how we're going to balance that all out. It's exciting and it's fun. And and we're coming up with some good strategies. I think they're going to help us tackle that and move forward. Okay, cool. You share some really good uh, social media design memes on our LinkedIn, (laughs) on your LinkedIn. And that's what 
attracted me to you. Like, I, I got to meet this guy. He's, his humor <laughs> and my humor are the same. Related to that, what do you think is good design? Because you certainly show a lot of examples of bad design. Uh, I'm much better at bad design than I am at good design, <laughs> which maybe that's why I'm a UX person and not a UI person. Good design is really hard to define. I think a lot of people know bad design when they see it, but we hear good design is invisible quite a bit with the idea that if something just works, you don't have to think about it. And you probably don't have to think about it to a level that it really doesn't even register with you. Uh, good design is really something that is going to follow uh, the, the laws of UX. I, I'm sure you've probably seen that website. I think it's just lawsofux.com, which is great. And my go-to when I talk about what do I look for good design, I'm pulling it up here just so I can run through all that. It. it goes through all the design principles and the pieces. So let's think about the aesthetic usability effect. Just because something looks good doesn't mean that, that it's actually going to function well. Things like you know, Hicks Law, the time it takes to make a decision increases with the number of complexity of choices. So keep your choices simple. And when I go back and when I think what's good design, I look at something that, that hits those sort of laws of UX, those principles of UX that really make things work, whether it's a digital design or a physical design. I think they all have to hit those pieces. And the majority of what I share is example of bad design are not digital design pieces. It's real world interactions that are distinctly non-digital that illustrate a digital point. I think there's so much there that we can learn and crosses over between the two worlds that really gives us an opportunity to relate to something and take a lesson from it. Sure. Yeah, this is a good site. I've been here so long ago that I've forgotten about <laughs> it, but I think this is like required reading for every designer on maybe onboarding. Just to, if you didn't know this, you should be knowing this. Yeah, start here. This is where you need to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's on my list of resources. And if it's not, it should be for new UX people. And one of the things that drives me nuts, especially because I don't have a, uh, a formal education background. I'm a self-taught UX person is that I know these rules, but I can't remember every gosh dang name for them out there. You know, so, <laughs> so if you tell me, okay, you know, if you ask me what's Fitz Law, and I go, okay, I know the name Fitz Law, but like <laughs> connecting it with something, I go, oh, so yeah, I've got lawsofux.com on uh, on standby for when I'm like, let's sound smart. I can pull this up real quick and re- <laughs> reference the law name and and get that out there. So, but there are a couple of them that I, you know, obviously Jacob's Law is one of the big ones. Users spend most of their time on other sites, so they want your site to work the same way. That's probably the one that I reference the most out of here. That and, and Hicks Law seems to be very relevant for the fintech world. Just decrease the number of choices. I think if we did those two things, honestly, out of all the laws that are on that list, we'd probably all be in a much better spot. Yeah, I apply or use Jacob's Law all the time with new designers. I feel like they want to show be original for the sake of original. That, That and a combination of they haven't learned the standard patterns yet. Mm-hmm. So when you do design portfolio reviews, you'll see like the back button on the bottom right, for example. Yeah. My analogy is if you're designing a car, mm-hmm. where would you want the certain things to be? Right? You <laughs> want the steering, you want the driver's seat probably up front. You want the yeah. steering wheel in the driver's seat. You probably want... not on the ceiling for that. That's right. Not... <laughs> Don't randomly start placing elements of a car just random haphazardly. People like you go to any car, they're all in the same place you feel secure and safe on how to drive this. But yeah, if you start putting it everywhere, you're going to... Yeah, and let's... I got into an interesting conversation with somebody who 
I'm not going to mention his name because we it wasn't a it wasn't a very friendly conversation to start off with. But I like the, the takeaway that I had from it was interesting. His point that he was trying to make is that UX is pretty much a solved problem at this point in time because of Jacob's Law. Just that everything out there is essentially the same, and that where the big money is in AI and using that to define personal choices and cater directly to those. And it's an interesting concept, right? That that Jacob's Law does push things more towards similarity. And you know, I think there is definitely room for AI to, to help with those designs and to help with the personalization of those designs. But there is also a huge UX component to how users interact with AI and, and the results that are pulled from that. That I think that's, you could argue, maybe the defining tech question of the 21st century is how users are going to interact with artificial intelligence and what those results and outcomes are going to be like, um, both from a, a usability perspective, but also from an ethical perspective and data uh, security perspective and privacy perspective. There's a lot of great questions there. And it all does tie in at some level with Jacob's Law. We, we do <laughs> want things to be as consistent as possible. And we do see a lot of consistency across uh, different platforms, but that doesn't mean that there's not room for innovation. It's uh, know the rules like a professional, so you know how to break them like an artist. I can't remember yeah. who exactly said yeah, that. That's but a great, great quote. quote. Yeah. yeah, some famous artist. I can't take credit for that one, but but definitely one of those things that uh, was an interesting conversation. And even though I think I ended up getting blocked from that oh. Twitter, the guy was very passionate about AI, and I was very passionate about UX. So we came a bit to loggerheads. I, yeah. I don't think I've been blocked by many people. So. Well, it, it hasn't gone away yet. You know this. <laughs> yeah, we. I guess we fear for our jobs at one point that AI can design all the UX, but it's, it's still far away. Just like- I don't think that's ever going to happen though. Yeah. And I'll tell you why is because AI is never going to be able to observe humans uh, in their true environment, understand everything that's going on within that environment to create truly usable solutions. AI is great with the quantitative data. It is excellent at giving it a huge data set and letting it learn from that. What AI doesn't do well and has never done well, and they never actually do very well, is the qualitative data. The We know what's happening. We get that from our qu- quantitative. But why is it happening? That's the qualitative piece. AI can make some strides there, but I don't think it will ever match uh, the ability of a skilled researcher to go out and make some good findings and good recommendations on how to innovate designs going forward. I think for a class of apps, now we're getting into debating, which is fun. For a certain <laughs> class of apps, which is really not innovative, right? Airbnb for dogs. You can take patterns from Airbnb. You can take patterns from some dog social network and you can combine them in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm sure AI could combine them in several different ways. And then the human can say, oh yeah, I think it looks more like this. It's like this and they can calibrate and maybe you right. get something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing is AI, the approach that I've commonly heard when people talk about AI and how it calibrates and how it might be used to calibrate experiences for users to try and overtake some of the UX uh, design and research pieces is essentially A-B testing, right? Keep mm-hmm. innovating different designs, putting those designs in front of the user and A-B test it automatically until you get to the a point of either acceptable or most efficiency <laughs> for, for your users. So whatever your KPI might be, whether that's conversions, whether that's abandonment rate or, or whatever it might be, you're essentially looking at that and just letting AI AB test the hell out of things until it gets to the right spot, which is certainly okay, but you're not solving 
you're not solving underlying problems at that point. You might be solving a piece for that flow, or you might be solving a piece for that particular use case. But AI doesn't have the ability to go out and understand use cases. Doesn't have the the ability to go out and understand people's motivations, and doesn't have the ability to go out and understand how people are using a tool within the context of their everyday lives or their everyday jobs. And that's where I think humans will have the ability to separate themselves, and why I think the research side of UX is really what's going to be. The growing side of UX for the next ten to fifteen years is you will need to have those good interpersonal skills, but you also need to have good qual- quantitative data and know how to work with AI going forward. It's going to be an interesting, going to be an interesting shift. Right. We'll probably see that more and more over the next ten years or so. Right. Yeah, they're going to optimize for something that is defined and familiar, and not really necessarily give you an answer you weren't looking for. Right. Yep. <laughs> and that's if that's all that you need, that's great. I, I know <laughs> plenty of websites that can benefit from that, even our own, and that's fine. But if you yeah. want to be, if you want to be an innovator, if you want to be a, a true market leader, and you want to be the head of the pack, yeah, that's not going to cut it in, in yeah. the long run. And that all that will do is that will put you level with everybody else, but that's not going to get you that step up. Yeah. The uh, one thing I say, I say it all the time now. Is this is not related to design necessarily, <laughs> but more business? Is like before refrigerators, there were these ice truck companies that would deliver ice in a box, in a nice ice box, and everybody, right. every home had an ice box, and they would just deliver a block of ice for you. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah the ice box company is never gonna invent the refrigerator, <laughs> right? That's not their business. Is harvesting ice and delivering it. So why would you kill that baby? <laughs> exactly, and that's AI will tell you how the best way to harvest that ice, and, and you know it will tell you and the all best, their best way routes to, and right, uh, yeah, to make sure that it doesn't melt along the way, and make sure that your delivery drivers, your ice delivery drivers, get in as few accidents as possible. But if you want to go out and build that refrigerator, AI might not even know that that's a thing. That that's a need because yeah. it doesn't understand the context of the use. I'm sure AI, of course, will evolve. And admittedly, my understanding of AI is probably not as good as it should be. Um, <laughs> but it's one of the things I'm just passionate enough about to feel some strong opinions on. And, and I probably have a bit of Dunning Kruger effect going on with that. That I feel a little bit more confident with it than I should. <laughs> but, but it's certainly something that I think is going to be a defining characteristic of the UX job market going down the road. And I think. If we acknowledge that as professionals, that gives us the opportunity now to start thinking about that and add that to our skill set. Very rarely are we, as tech professionals, at a job for more than a few years. I think that's the way the the job market is right now. You know, we're going to be looking to move up and move around, and you know, the ability to work with AI and set these AI automated tests and really leverage the skills that AI can use could be one of those things that really sets you apart, and maybe sooner rather than later. Yeah, and then other UX skills like voice UX or anything like that. Yeah, I've man, voice UX is one of those really just technologies that I'm not impressed. That's why I say you know work on it, please. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like people were were excited about voice voice UX and voice UI when I first really started getting into UX, you know, back in 2009 was really when I started back in that direction. People I mean, were like, Star Trek. And it's Why great. Does this work? When it works, it's great. So I actually don't have them on right now. They're upstairs charging, but I have a pair of Amazon Echo frames. So they're glasses with Amazon's, you know, Echo technology in them. You can, you know, stream music, you can talk to them, you do all the, you know, Alexa stuff. And when it works, it's great. And probably 90% of the time, 
it works, which is a lot better than it's been for, for some other places in the past. But that 10% of the time where it doesn't just drives me absolutely nuts. And that's the problem with uh, the, the VUI component of things is that there's, it still doesn't work enough for people to trust it fully. It works just often enough to be usable, but not enough for that trust to always be there, particularly when you're in those high stakes situations. Um, like so, driving, exactly. Driving. Yeah, 90% yeah, percent is just not good enough. <laughs> or when your doctor calls you while you're loading groceries into the back of your car in a snowstorm and you need to interact with it, which is what happened with me yesterday. That was, uh, yeah, me probably yelling at my echo frames was probably why they're charging right now. I'm sure I'd Blast <laughs> doing that, <laughs> but but yeah, it's a different uh, it's a different level of trust that that needs to happen with that. And you need to know and trust that the the UI is going to be able to respond to you in an intelligent way. And we're we're close, we're so close, but we're still not there yet. <laughs> so get on it, people out there. <laughs> let's get that let's get that trust level up a little bit, and and we can all move forward into uh, the next generation, literally and figuratively, right? <laughs> so we just talked about you know your UX job and UI job at Western Union. Now we're voice UI and maybe vehicle UI, but uh, this show is called What Is UX? So we I'd like <laughs> to try to get a definition from everyone. So you know, how do you explain to say your mom what you do and and what is UX? Yeah, it's funny. So. My my mom knows and I think still understands very little about what I do, despite my repeated attempts to try and explain to her what's going on. The basic way that I explain it to people is I just make things easier to use I, I, by understanding the motivations of the people that use them. And that's when it comes down to, it, I think, the most simple explanation that you can have is that UX is just all about making things easier, simpler, more intuitive by observing the people that are, are, or the actors, maybe is maybe a better word that are interacting with that product. Usually it's people, but it could be other computers and could be robots and could be dogs, whatever you want it to be. And so explaining that to her, even though I've put that in very basic terms is not always the, the easiest side of things. Now, on the other hand, my mother-in-law is a, a QA tester. So we are able to oh, talk wow. UX for hours, <laughs> um, which is great. So it's interesting that- uh, Which isn't a common thing with mother-in-laws and their- <laughs> It's not, but it's great. And I love it. Cindy is, uh, I lucked out in a lot of ways with Cindy as a mother-in-law, but certainly the ability to talk shop with somebody that actually understands what I do was tremendously important. I, I think a lot of UX people don't necessarily have that. A lot of UX people are in families or partnered with somebody that maybe isn't in the same industry or maybe does something that's similar, but not similar enough to really understand what we go through on an everyday basis. And just having the ability to go out there and, and talk to someone and sh rather than shouting into the void of what's <laughs> of Twitter or Instagram or yeah. LinkedIn, I think makes a big difference. I'm glad she lives about uh, maybe a good half mile away from me. She's really right down the road. So we can, I can invite her over anytime and, and complain <laughs> to her. Unfortunately, she listens. <laughs> <laughs> For some relatives, I'm like their IT guy. You fix this. Uh, my browser's full of whatever. <laughs> There's so many tab bars because people click on random stuff yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everything gets installed and you got to clean that up. Mm -hmm. And then my dad in the early days, he's 
from what the 70s right or like he worked in the 70s so he had an early computer yeah by the time he was a boss so he had like people other people <laughs> touching the, the computer mm-hmm. and and all he knew was computers broke like, he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't know what they were for you can type documents but generally they just broke all the time because there were always people there fixing it yeah and so i went went into this profession he's oh so you want to learn how to fix computers because <laughs> 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 that's all he saw so he's people I, coming in to fix computers that were always breaking that 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 physically but metaphorically, but, but metaphorically right? yeah <laughs> yeah and it's funny because the age difference and the amount of technology that people understand I, I find that gap fascinating in that you have the people there like my mom and my mother-in-law that are roughly the same age that have vastly different tech understandings even my my granddad was in his 90s when he passed a couple of years ago he worked as an engineer for ibm and so he got uh, it yeah he was the guy that developed magnetic tape drives that was and that was his baby. And so even he, even he got it. It was when I hear people say, I can't understand computers. I don't want to understand computers. I can't understand usability. I don't want to understand usability. I don't want to understand design. I don't buy it because I, all that I think is it just hasn't been presented in a way that's approachable. Right. And that's part of what, one of the reasons why I like to post those memes and those jokes is a, to keep things funny because we all need to laugh, but it does make it a lot more relatable and, and yeah. helps to illustrate some of those concepts. So I think that's an important way to try and get people in there too. Yeah. You make it more real. I yeah. really like your examples and uh, we'll show someone in the YouTube version. So what we do awesome. on this show is we, we take this video, but we, uh, we also add B-roll when we're referencing stuff. So nice. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, <laughs> there's more than a few that I'm I'm proud of, but you can take your pick. There's a lot out there, and the fun things that you get to interact with people, and every now and then you get somebody that's, oh, I finally get it now. <laughs> 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 yeah, I finally get what this means, or I finally get what this concept was, and just finding a way to make it uh, approachable for people is is very rewarding for me. So I'm I'm glad I can help out and do that. And and as we wrap up, do you want to promote the app that you work on and encourage people to use it in a way if they need to transfer money B2B overseas? You know, Western Union doesn't need my help. I'm not going to promote that. But what I will do is I'm going to, you're going to have to take me, give me a moment to uh, pull this up because I, I always forget that I get a chance to actually promote things. I have a speaking engagement coming up and I'm just trying. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Is this to do with your flying octopus design? No, this is uh, to do, I'm talking about dark patterns with, I forget the name of the group, but it's a UX group out of St. Louis. And that's what I'm trying to find is just that date. Yeah. Okay. So you can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Let me just back this up here. If we can roll through this here. Okay. So. Western Union doesn't need my help. I appreciate you giving the opportunity to bump up with them, but that is not something that they need. What I would like to talk about, though, is I am giving a a talk coming up in May with a UX group, UX meetup group out of St. Louis that is run by Holly Schrader. She's at 314UXHolly on Twitter. And we're going to be talking about dark patterns. I'm going to be going through, I run a class on dark patterns and be talking about the ugly side of persuasion (laughs) and, and how it's used against us in UX. And we're going to be talking about that, not in terms of learning how to do it so that you can do it for yourself, but in terms of being able to identify those patterns understand the psychology behind uh, why they work 
and being able to speak against them when people in your organization are trying to push you to to go down those roads. So if you want to drop by, I'm sure we'll put the info for that in the show notes. You can also, I'll pin that, tw- pin that uh, information to my Twitter profile. If you drop by over there at Doug Collins UX, that's my social handle just about everywhere. Uh, you can find me at Doug Collins UX, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Snapchat. I think on Reddit, I'm actually Denver UXer, but that's- Unless uh, you never I, change I your career. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah. I'm pot committed as we'd say in poker at this point, but I'd be honored if you guys would come join me there and talk. Holly runs a great UX group. I've worked with her on a lot of different things and that's going to be a good time. Awesome. Thank you. We'll do that. Yeah. And that's it. All right. Awesome, man. Thank you for joining us on this episode of what is UX. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.